0: You know, if you ever get a chance to study the life of Louis Zamperini, I highly recommend it. This is a man who has had movies portrayed about him, books written about him, countless articles about his life. This is a man who was in the 1934 Olympics as a sprinter. In fact, he got to shake the hand of Hitler He was then sent into uh, the military for World War II where he flew planes in the Pacific Theater. While Louis was in the Pacific Theater flying airplanes, he had two crashes, one of which he landed in the Pacific Ocean where he was stranded on a boat on a raft for 47 days. He was then rescued by the Japanese on a carrier. He was made a... POW, a prisoner of war, for two years in a Japanese imprisonment camp. While he was there, he was nearly starved to death and regularly beaten within an inch of his life. The trauma that he experienced was so significant that when he returned home to California, he would have violent uh, nightmares. He would wake up and find himself strangling his wife in horror over what was happening to him. He turned to alcohol and just became a, an alcoholic who was just continually drunk. He made some really bad financial decisions. His life was falling apart, and finally his wife had had enough. And she said, that's it, I'm, I'm done. But at that time, a friend invited Louis's wife to go to a Billy Graham crusade in Los Angeles. She went, and she heard the gospel, and she put her faith in Jesus. Her life was drastically changed by the gospel, and she went to her husband Louis and said, You've got to come with me. So she brought Louis with her to a Billy Graham crusade where they heard the gospel. And the entire time, Louis was angry. He stormed out, just totally rejecting what was just said. His wife pleaded with him to come back the next day, one more time, just give it a shot. Louis returned, heard the gospel turned from his sin, and believed upon Jesus. And his life was drastically changed. He turned away from alcohol. He started loving his wife the way that Christ loves the church. He started preaching Jesus in different parts of his community. He started a boy's camp to care for at-risk teenage boys and led many of them to faith in Christ. He eventually took a trip back to Japan where he not only started preaching the gospel, but he forgave those who had treated him so terribly. Nobody thought Louis Zamperini could ever be a follower of Jesus. But he met Christ and Jesus changed everything about him and turned him into a preacher. Well, Louis's life is a picture of someone we've been studying for the past several weeks in Acts chapter 9. We meet Saul, a persecutor turned preacher, a terrorist turned evangelist. And we see where Saul goes on the offense with the gospel in Acts chapter 9. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 9. We're going through the book of Acts together as a faith family and studying this great historical narrative, the story of the early church church. This is written by by Luke. We will read the Gospel of Luke where it's the story of the life and ministry of Jesus. You get to the book of Acts, and this is the life and ministry of the early church where we see the Holy Spirit working in and through God's people. We saw back in Acts chapter 1 where Jesus ascended up into heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. In Acts 2, the Holy Spirit descends at Pentecost. The church is born. Thousands of people come to faith in Christ. An amazing movement of the Spirit. The church begins to multiply. Persecution intensifies against the apostles. But as the persecution increases, so does the multiplication of disciples. You get to Acts 7. It's a pivotal moment, a watershed moment in the life of the church. Stephen is martyred. He is murdered for his faith in Jesus and boldly preaching the gospel to the Sanhedrin. And who is there holding the clothes of those who are throwing the rocks and stoning Stephen but Saul and we see him breathing out murderous threats against the church we get to Acts 9 he has gotten the authority from the high priest to go and start arresting these followers of the way these people who claim to be followers of Jesus so he's on a mission to go and arrest and to take them into imprisonment in which they would eventually be killed for heresy for being these people who are believing something about God that is not true we're in this little mini-series called Life Change as We look at Acts 9 in seeing this life change that's happened with this guy named Saul. As he's headed north from Jerusalem up towards Damascus, he has this blinding light, the glory, the Shekinah glory of Jesus, appears and he blinds him and he sends him to his knees. He's humbled. He realizes that it's Jesus whom he has been persecuting. He's blind, and so now his friends, though they hear the sound of Jesus' voice, they don't see him, they take Saul by the hand into Damascus. And for three days, he doesn't eat, he doesn't see, he just sits there. And as he's there, he has a vision where the Lord tells him, there's someone called Ananias. This man is a church leader from Damascus. He's going to come and lay his hands upon you, and you're going to receive your sight. And so Ananias hesitates. But he obeys, lays his hands upon Saul. Saul's sight is restored. He gets baptized. His life has been changed by the gospel. And then he gets something to eat. And that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 9, beginning with verse 19. And the scripture says this. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some time. "'Immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. "'He is the Son of God. "'All who heard him were astounded and said, "'Isn't this the man in Jerusalem "'who is causing havoc for those who called on this name "'and came here for the purpose "'of taking them as prisoners to the chief priests?' "'But Saul grew stronger and kept confounding the Jews "'who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah.'" "'After many days had passed, the Jews conspired to kill him. "'But Saul learned of their plot. "'So they were watching the gates day and night, "'intending to kill him. "'But his disciples took him by night "'and lowered him in a large basket "'through an opening in the wall. "'When he arrived in Jerusalem, "'he tried to join the disciples, "'but they were all afraid of him, "'since they did not believe that he was a disciple.' Barnabas, however, took him and brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that the Lord had talked to him and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. Saul was coming and going with them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers found out, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus." Saul's salvation came as an electric shock to the Jews of Damascus and Jerusalem. This former persecutor is now preaching and he's proclaiming Jesus is the Son of God. Here is Saul, this member of the Sanhedrin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, who had trained under the highest trainer, Gamaliel, one of the great leaders of Judaism. He has been trained in Judaism, and here he is now, an evangelist. The Holy Spirit has lit a flame in a man who is combustible for the gospel. And here you and I sit, 2,000 years later, and we have this brief window in our lives, this momentary life that we have, a few years that God has given to us, And the question I want us to answer today is, how can we leverage this brief, temporary life that is a vapor, James says? How can we leverage this life for something bigger than ourselves? How can you and I impact our world for Jesus? Well, from the text, There's two principles I want to propose to you that if we seek to do these two things, it will propel us towards a life that will have impact for the glory of King Jesus. The first thing I want you to see in the text is this you need the local church. You need the local church. Verse 19, it says, Saul was with the disciples. Saul was with. I love that word, with. It's a preposition. It communicates community. It communicates togetherness and connection. Saul needed the church, and the church needed Saul. Here's the thing. Saul needed to be discipled. He needed believers to teach him how to follow Jesus, how to deny the flesh and to walk in the Spirit. He needed other believers who would teach him how to follow Christ faithfully in a world full of idols. He needed the church to mentor him and teach him how to follow Jesus. You see, before Jesus, Paul was an angry fellow. This is a guy who not only wanted to persecute, but he wanted to murder followers of Jesus. But now he is one. Now he's a believer. He's a new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have come. And even though he is a new creation in Christ, he's got a lot of growth that needs to take place. He's still a babe in Christ. You see, he was now in the process of sanctification. All right, that's a big word. We're not scared of it. We're not scared of big words, y'all. Sanctification, what is that, Kenneth? Sanctification is the lifelong process of becoming more like Jesus, now this is true for you, this is true for me, this is true for all who believe the gospel. At the moment you trusted in Jesus, the Holy Spirit came and took up residence inside of you. that Ephesians 1, you have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He 's a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance, and one of the missions of the Holy Spirit is Romans 829 to conform you into the image of Jesus. It is the heartbeat of God to make you become more and more like Christ. And so as a believer in Jesus, you're now being sanctified. You're being changed. And it doesn't happen overnight. This is not a microwavable process. It's a lifelong pursuit of becoming more and more like Jesus. The Holy Spirit is shaping the way that you think. He's changing the way that you believe. He's transforming your thinking, your believing, your feeling. He revolutionizes your life. And he's making you more and more like Jesus. And the parts of your life and my life that don't look like Jesus, the Spirit will cut them off so that we can bear fruit. And it's this process of becoming more like Jesus. It's this maturity that takes place over time. But it's not fast, y'all. You and I get frustrated if the Wi-Fi is not working in less than five seconds. Sanctification. It's a lifelong pursuit, y'all. It takes time. It's where the Spirit, day by day, is working. As you daily deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow Jesus, the Spirit is working. He's changing the way that you think, the way that you feel, the way that you believe. He's changing the outcome of your life. And this is going to take place for the rest of your life if you're in Christ. That when the time comes when all of your hair is gone and all of your teeth are gone and you and I are eating soft foods, we're still going to be sanctified. The Spirit is still shaping us. He's still changing us. He's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond compare. That God is working. And here is Saul, a man who had a lot of rough edges. A man who's coming from a life, though he had the Old Testament mastered. His life had drastically changed. And he needed the local church. He needed senior adults praying for him. He needed teenagers encouraging him. He needed pastors who would teach him. He needed single moms who would model for him how to be a faithful follower of Jesus and to trust in Christ in difficult circumstances. This great hero of the faith is at this point in Acts 9, he's a babe in Christ. He's just a new believer. Even though he's got all kinds of knowledge, his heart has been changed, his life has been changed, but it's like he's still toddling, taking his first steps as a new believer. You see, God gave Saul the local church. Saul needed the church, and the church needed Saul. And hear me on this. You need the church, and the church needs you. That's really not a revolutionary statement, but it is in our culture. Unfortunately, in the global West, we've come to believe that a follower of Jesus can just do life on their own apart from the church. I want you to know that's a foreign concept to the New Testament. God's design is for you and I to live in community with other brothers and sisters in Christ, that together we follow Jesus and we admonish one another, we encourage one another, we rebuke one another, we challenge one another, we pray for one another. You need people who know you really well, and they say, man, I love you, you're being an idiot, stop it, come on, go this way. I need people in my life saying, hey, Kenneth, you're being awfully selfish. See, you and I, we've got a lot of blind spots. And this is why God's given you the church to be a sanctifying tool in your life. That yes, the Holy Spirit will use the word of God to transform you and sanctify you. But the spirit of God will also use the people of God to transform you and to shape you. You see, God made you to live in community with other brothers and sisters in Christ. You need people who know your story, they know your strengths, they know your weaknesses, they know your tendencies, and they encourage you. They've got your back, they pray for you, they support you, they rebuke you in the name of Jesus, and they walk with you. This is what we do together as followers of Jesus. This is biblical Christianity in which we do it together. And as you grow with the church, This is what God does. God strengthens you. That's what we see in verse 22. You see what's happening here? Three words. Saul grew stronger. As he's sharing the gospel, yes. As he's an evangelist with the Jews in the synagogues, he's getting stronger, yes. But don't miss who he is with. He is with the disciples. But you also know what's interesting here. Verse 23 says that after many days had passed... All right, that phrase is actually a reference to a three-year time period. Kenneth, where in the world did you get that? Galatians chapter one. In Galatians 1, 18, Paul tells the, the churches of Galatia that after his conversion, he didn't go to Jerusalem for three years. In fact, in verse 18, he says in Galatians 1, he spent time in Damascus and in Arabia. Now, what did he do during those three years? Well, presumably Paul was preaching the gospel, verse 20, right? He's going into the synagogues and preaching the gospel. And we're going to unpack that more here in just a moment. But he's also probably, he's being discipled. He's with the disciples, he's with the church, and he's growing, he's maturing, he's becoming more and more like Christ. You see, as a new believer, Saul needed more mature believers to teach and instruct and encourage him along the way. I came to faith in Jesus at the age of 18, and soon after I came to Christ, I started classes at the University of Kentucky. And while I was there, I was invited to go to the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, a gathering of several hundred college students on Wednesday nights. And we'd pray and worship and we'd sing and hear the word. It was just a really cool gathering. And I met some other guys um, who were just solid believers, man, passionately following Jesus. And there was this one guy who I was like, man, hey, can we start meeting together? He said, man, I would love that. So we started meeting once a week and we started memorizing scripture together. We'd pray together, hold each other accountable. Um, we, we, it was just a, a sweet time of, of growth. He started teaching me how to be a faithful follower of Jesus. We would get a bunch of guys together and we'd go to downtown Lexington and we'd share the gospel with people who were bar hopping or homeless. An incredible season of maturity and growth. In fact, that guy, ironically, uh, his name is Paul. And uh, during that time, Paul just poured into me he discipled me. And during that season, I joined a local church. And at that local church, I found older men in the church who started pouring into me. Uh, There were men in their 60s and men in their 40s, uh, men in their 20s. And these guys just started just pouring into me. Uh, on Sunday afternoons, I would go to the home of, of David and Betty Joe, both in their, in their 60s. And David was a former baseball player, and his, his fingers looked like hot dogs, right? I mean, just they were ginormous. And he would, he would pray, and he'd put his elbows up on the table, and he would just clasp his fingers like this, and he would call down heaven on my behalf. I learned how to be a husband, how to be a father, how to lead and shepherd from a guy like that. And though my parents did a phenomenal job of modeling love and community, it was amazing how God brought other people into my life to teach and to shepherd and encourage and to model. This is what a Christ follower looks like. It's amazing how God is so gracious in which he puts people into our lives who will put their arm around us and say, I'm gonna walk with you. That's what happened with Saul. When he gets to Jerusalem, the church stiff arms him. They're like, hey bro, we don't think you're a believer. We don't want you near us, but there's this one guy named Barnabas. Barnabas says, Saul, come here, bro. Puts his arm around him, hears his story, celebrates with him, takes him to the apostles and says, hey, guys, this guy right here, Jesus appeared to him, which, by the way, is a qualification for being an apostle. All right? The only way you can be an apostle is if you have a face-to-face encounter with Jesus. So if today someone calls themselves an apostle, uh uh-uh, no, 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 not possible. It's a New Testament mark. Here is Saul. He says, I'm, an, I'm a least among the apostles because I persecuted the church of God. And he says, I'm as one who was untimely born, meaning I came to faith in Jesus later and I met Jesus well after the church had been established. Right? That's how he sees himself. And yet here he is going and he's meeting with the apostles and he begins growing and maturing there in the church at Jerusalem. May God raise up more Barnabases even here in our church. Just men and women who will lock, put, lock arms with brothers and sisters. They'll invite people. Hey, get in here. Let me hear your story. And come, come join me. Be a part of us. That we're, we're, we're people who are continually looking to invite and encourage and bring people in. And, there, and here's what I love. I, I, I look across the landscape of this room and there are so many people who are Barnabas's. Okay, and, and I wish I, I, had, I had more time to, to, to unpack this, but, but I think about somebody like, like a Bob Rickman, a guy who's intentionally trying to encourage uh, believers, and he's always positive and affirming. Uh, I, I think about a guy like, like Harper Whitman, who just loves believers, and he has a heart for the boys at Safety Net and taking groups down there once a month, just trying to invest in these young guys to come alongside them to, to affirm them. And, 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 I, and I, here's the thing, can I just say this? I, I think for all of us, if I can speak for all of us, All of us one day want to grow up and be Jim and Blanche Spinks. I'm not sure about you. That's kind of how I feel. Like I hang out with Jim and Blanche, and I'm like, golly, I want to be like you one day, right? They're Barnabases. They're glue. They're showing the importance of the local church. And guess what? You get to do that. You get to walk slowly off the campus. You get to engage in conversations. Yeah, this is going to sound silly, but one of my favorite sounds is the sound of fellowship. Uh, one of the things, that, this is going to sound so weird, y'all, but sometimes after services are, are done, I kind of go off to the side, and I will stand against the wall, and I'll just kind of close my eyes for a minute, and I just listen. And I'll sometimes bring somebody over, and I'll bring, hey, come here and listen to this. Close your eyes. Listen to this. And they're like, what are we listening for? <laughs> and I tell them. That's the sound of church health. That's the sound of a church that's loving each other. And we're building relationships. And there's a lot of us, y'all. There's a ton of people here. And if you're new, you might be thinking, my goodness gracious, this is overwhelming. And I completely understand that. But I want to place the burden upon Westwood members. Have your eyes open, your arms open, and say, hey, get in here. Come join us, be a part. You going to lunch today? Come with us. What a great model of what Barnabas is doing here with Saul. Hey, hey, Saul, come with me. You need the local church. You need it. And the local church needs you. You have spiritual gifts that the Spirit has given to you for the sake of blessing and benefiting the local church. God wants to use your gifts through you to be a blessing to others and we get to do it together and it's it's tangible right it, it's it's meaningful ways that we can do this i mean think about what's happening right here with Saul here is a guy who we'll get to his evangelism in a moment but because he's so boldly preaching Jesus the people the uh, the Jews in Damascus want to kill him And the Jews in Jerusalem want to kill him. So do you see what happened there in the text is that the church sees him in trouble. And it's not like, well, good luck, bro. No, 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 no. What do they do? They're like, hey, Saul, uh, there are people at the entrances of the city here in Damascus, and they want to kill you. There are assassins. Their eyes are open. They're watching for you to come in or out. They are night, The scripture says that they're there waiting for him. So what do they do? Under the cover of night, they put him in a basket, kind of like a Joshua 2, where we see uh, Rahab lowers the Israelite spies, right? This is what they're doing with Paul. They, they get in this basket, bro, and we're going to lower you down, and he escapes to safety and to freedom. It's tangible. The church saying, hey, we got your back. We're going to protect you. We're going to be with you. In fact, even in Jerusalem, as the, the, the Jews, the Hellenistic Jews, want to murder Paul, the church finds out, and they're like, hey, bro, we got to get you out of town. And so they're like, hey, man, we're going to take you to Caesarea, which is about 120 miles northwest on the Mediterranean Sea, right? And then from there, we're going to send you up to Tarsus, about 150 miles northeast. We're going to to get you back to safety, your hometown, by the way, and we're going to get you out of here. That's what the church does. We protect one another. We encourage one another. We champion one another. We walk with one another. We're patient with one another. We extend grace to one another. We give one another the benefit of the doubts. That if there's confusion or messiness in relationships, we're going to, like, hey, listen, let's, let's humble ourselves and let's, let's get this right. This is what it looks like to be a local church. You know, one of the, the scriptures, uh, I'm sorry, descriptions in the New Testament of the church is that we're family. And sometimes family doesn't get along, all right? I'm not sure if that's, and maybe that's just my family, but there's just times where there's, there's conflict and disagreement. And, and maturity and humility says, hey, let's get this right. Let's humble ourselves. Let's reconcile, walk in joy and humility and love. We're not going to avoid hard truth, but we're going to love each other through it. And it's healthy. And this is what a healthy gospel culture looks like within a church, This is what's happening here. We see Saul who was with the disciples. And may I say to you, you need to be with the church. You need God's people in your life. If you're going to persevere to the end, if you want Jesus to maximize his glory through your brief temporary life, you need the church. But secondly, Hear me on this. We need to preach Jesus to the world. See it there in verse 20. Immediately he began proclaiming Jesus. I love that word immediately. Like it's this urgency, right? Saul's not waiting until he has the answers. He's not waiting until he's been discipled. He's playing offense with the gospel immediately. And it's, hey, Jesus has changed my life. I got, you guys got to know this, right? hear me on this. You don't need a seminary degree to share the gospel. Okay. You don't have to be in Sunday school for decades before you share Jesus. If you've met Jesus, if he's changed your life, you've got a story to tell. You get to point people to Jesus. You get to brag on him. That's evangelism. You're talking about what he has done through his perfect life, his death, his burial, his resurrection from the dead. Anybody who turns from sin and trusts in him by faith, you're rescued, you're saved. That's the gospel. It's simple. Anybody can get it on this. It's so easy, a child can understand it. And yet God in his providential wisdom makes it so simple that even the most prideful college professor is blinded to it. Those who are arrogant and full of pride and selfishness, those who are unwilling to humble themselves, it's tomfoolery. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, this is the power of God this great gospel that is so precious and sweet. And this is why when we gather and we sing together, what a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus, is because we see who he is and what he's done. And he's changed everything about us. And he not only affects my life here and now, he affects my life 20 billion years from now. Like This is the precious Savior that we grab hold of, and we have a gospel to tell. Here is Paul boldly proclaiming Jesus. He's making Christ known. So where does he go to start? He starts with the people in the places he knows the best. Verse 20, he goes toe-to-toe with Jewish leaders, and it says he started preaching in the synagogues. Now, synagogues, okay, so that's a Jewish place of of teaching and for prayer. And this guy, Saul, he grew up with the finest Jewish education. He knew the language. He knew the culture. He knew the people. Probably had relationships with these guys in these synagogues. And yet he has a heart for reaching Jews for Jesus. We see this when he says in Romans chapter 9, He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit. Watch this. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. He's like, man, if I could give up my salvation so that Jews would be saved, I would do it right here and now. He's saying, listen, I'm willing to forego my eternal life if only they would be saved. That's his heart. It's a, it's a great sorrow. It's an unceasing anguish. Now, God, by his grace, thankfully doesn't work that way. He doesn't take away our salvation to give it to someone else. Thankfully, he doesn't do that. But you get Paul's point. You see his heart. His eyes are moist from tears, weeping over the lostness of people that he loves. He knows their faces, he knows their names, and he desires for them to come to know Jesus. Question, who was the last people group that you wept over? Is there someone in your life in which you're weeping for their salvation, praying, oh God, please open their eyes. Help them to see, does God burdened you for a people group? What's interesting is here we see Saul, he's beginning with the people he knows, the culture he knows, the language he knows and god has providentially and strategically placed you and i in this culture right here and now in your community your neighborhood your ball club your school your workplace and god has put you there for a purpose and it's to point your coworkers your teammates your friends your family your neighbors to jesus it's boldly preaching the gospel It's having this heart of seeing people come to a saving knowledge of the truth. And the only way you can fail is if you stay silent. That's the only way. But Kenneth, what if I say something that's really stupid? Can I encourage you? You're going to. I do it all the time. I get paid to do it. (laughs) You're going to mess up in your evangelism. I still get nervous, y'all. I've been doing it for a long time. It's okay to be scared. But you see, remember we said sanctification is the lifelong process of becoming more like Jesus? God is sanctifying you through evangelism. Because he's putting you in a position where you're like, okay, God, I've got to have you. If you don't step up, this thing falls apart. Right? You see... There are some who seek to put evangelism and discipleship at odds with each other, that you're committed to one or the other. In scripture, we see they hold hands, they go together. And, 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 and like, let me give you an example. So, when you step up to share the gospel with a co worker, man, you're going to feel some fear and some nerves, like, oh, okay. Then what happens? Jesus, will you please help me? Will you give me the courage? Will you help me to say the right words? Would you open their eyes? And what's happening? Man, you're casting your heart upon Jesus and your faith is increasing. You want to mature in the faith? Start sharing the gospel. If you want to see yourself be a mature believer, start being an evangelist. It's going to put you in positions in which you're going to say, God, I've got to have you. But it's in those moments that God meets with you. Because as you begin to get in the habit of sharing the gospel, you know what's going to happen is you're going to start saying things that are coming out of your mouth, like, where is this coming from? It's the Holy Spirit. He's taking these words and it's like, oh my goodness gracious, I'm just going to keep talking. He's taking the word that's been planted in your heart through discipleship and now you're applying it through evangelism. You see, evangelism drives you to two places to your Bible for answers and to your knees for prayer you're going to start finding that your prayer life is going to change because you're no longer praying about simple things or small, petty things. You're praying about eternal things. God, open my teammates' eyes to the gospel. God, I pray that my neighbors would come to know Jesus. Like, those are things God's like, yeah, now we're talking. God cares about the small stuff in your life. But he also is calling you to something deeper. And the way that you get to join him is you say, God, break my heart for what breaks yours. And lost people break the heart of God. And Saul is at the point where he's in tears, longing to see people come to know Jesus. And so we say, God, break my heart. Give me a heart, a passion, moist eyes that are weeping for unbelievers. And God, give me the courage and boldness to step up, to proclaim and tell the, tell the nations what you have done. And this is what God does with you and with me. And it's, y'all, this is not complicated. Like, these are layups, right? This is not like, whoa, like this is really, really complicated. It's very simple. If Jesus has changed your life, you want to talk about him. You want people to know what you know. You want people to experience what you have experienced. But if you don't have that desire, hear me on this, it may be because you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're not brokenhearted for unbelievers, it may be because you don't know Christ yet. And if, and, I, and you're like, hey, whoa, 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 I'm not supposed to question my salvation. 2 Corinthians 13 says, examine yourself. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. There's nothing more horrible than to presume that you're in Jesus then you take your last breath and you're not. Examine your heart's. And questions: question is, are you banking your soul upon religious actions that you've done or upon a genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? You're banking your soul, not upon you, but upon him. It's Jesus. You're saying, you're the one who can save me. And I'm leaning and I'm banking my soul squarely upon you. And when he changes you, man, you can't help but talk about it. You begin having these conversations. This week I was traveling in Atlanta for a conference and I had stopped at a restaurant and I just had a brief window of time and my server came over. And this is what I do at most restaurants most of the time. I'm like, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm about to pray for my food. How can I pray for you? And it's amazing. A, that question kind of sets the temperature of where they're at. Like you can see where they are spiritually with that one question. Hey, I'm gonna pray for you. How can I pray for you? And this girl was just like, man, I just, I'm, I want a dream job and I'm here as a server and I'm just not, this is not what I want to do. And she, and it led to just a great conversation. Turns out she was a believer, but I got to just encourage her and pray for her and pray that God would open doors so that she might go. And I, and I did pray for her to have a dream job, but I was also praying for something bigger that God would place her in a place where she could have a lot of impact for Jesus. Listen, the gospel opportunities abound for us. We got to seize them. You see, we see here in verse 22, Paul just kept proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 28, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. You know, Saul's preaching was a lot like taking a stick and putting it in a hornet's nest and then just kind of shaking it around. You never left his preaching without knowing where he stood on the gospel. I came across this quote uh, recently. I, I can't find the source. on on this one, but there's this British pastor who said this this phrase right here. He says, everywhere the apostle Paul went, there was either a riot or a revival. Everywhere I go, they serve tea. (laughs) We got a gospel to share, y'all. And whether there's a riot or a revival or they serve tea, we preach Christ. In fact, this is the challenge, the impact point I want to bring before you today. It says, The impact point is to shock the world with a passion for your church and for preaching the gospel. Nobody, nobody thought Saul would ever become a believer. He was full of rage and hatred and malice. Nobody thought Louis Zamperini would become a believer. He was full of alcohol and vengeance and rage. But Jesus changed him. You see, God loves to display his power by shocking the world, by changing the lives of people who look to Jesus by faith and they become preachers, people like Saul and people like Louis and people like you.